Hello, hello, and welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Alex Gutmus, and on our panel today, we have myself and Lars Vickman. Howdy. <laughs> Took my line again, Lars. Joining us today, we have Adam Mokan. Hi, Adam. You want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Good to talk to you guys. My name is Adam Mokan. I am uh, we're currently working as a uh, director of engineering over at a small company called Hiring Sol. We're located in the, in the U.S. Totally remote team over there, and I've been working in the uh, Elixir Erlang community quite a bit since uh, 2011, but but very heavily from 2015 on. And uh, last year I spoke at ElixirConf 2019 in Denver. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. Cool. So you said that you've been in the Erlang and Elixir community. So I'm guessing you started with Erlang and then transitioned to Elixir? I did, yeah. In 2011, I actually worked with Eric Merritt, who authored the Erlang in Action book, was a co-author for Manning. And so I was exposed to Erlang unexpectedly, and it really kind of opened my eyes to you know a lot of different areas in, in the software world that I, I just didn't even know existed. That's pretty cool. Now, how was, uh, so before Erlang, were you, was it Ruby? I actually, I started out in the, in the late 90s, started my career in 1998. And naturally just kind of gravitated towards the the Microsoft side of things. I, I was working in the Midwest and self-taught. So that community is definitely full of a lot of, you know, there was a lot of BB, Visual Basic, Visual Basic 6 back in that era. And, you know, as the web started propagating, everything kind of naturally shifted into that .NET C-sharp community, you know, at least in the area where I was at in the, in the Midwest. So I did that for a number of years. Then around 2011, 2010, I, I really just started getting bored by by that community. You know, no offense to anybody that's still involved in that world, but I was looking for something different, and Ruby really caught my attention. So I, right around 2010, 2011, like I said, I, I started really gravitating towards dynamic languages, Ruby, Python, and I just found the community in Ruby, you know, to be, a, it was just a totally different world than the .NET you know, game that I was in. So yeah, I, I, it's, it was, you know, kind of an organic transition. And then as I mentioned, the Erlang thing just kind of hit me out of nowhere. It's, uh, I had never heard of it. I was, you know, dwelling on this Ruby thing. And then all of a sudden I start working with these guys that are doing magic, you know, what, what appeared to be magic or uh, sorcery with the Erlang VM. So that, that just really caught my attention. It's something I, I was never able to uh, forget, you know, going forward. Yeah, that's a bit of an uncommon transition. Getting into Ruby and then being like blindsided by Erlang before Elixir. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, usually goes the other way around. But I, I've definitely seen all kinds. The Elixir, uh, getting into Elixir comes by many more paths than the, I would say, traditional Ruby to Elixir that, that a lot of people mention. Yeah, I think, I mean, in, in particular, what really kind of struck me, I was working with a uh, 
was a team. Uh, we were in the Bay Area, California. I was working with a, it was a tech company that was focused on voice over IP. So, I mean, you know, there's telephony at play. So the Erlang fit was definitely natural there. I was actually running a team that was building the the front end and some of the APIs that interacted with the platform that we were developing. So I, I wasn't working on the telephony side, but I was an, I was an architect that was working side by side with the telephony architects. So when I watched what they were doing with the Beam, you know, you first see that syntax, especially if you're not familiar with it. And you know, it was definitely it was uh, it caught my attention. But then what really struck me was watching that, you know, the fault tolerance in action, watching people pull. I mean, we had this kind of war room that was our lab and people would pull the network jacks out of servers and, you know, on purpose to simulate failure and watching calls heal and self-heal in that platform. It was just, it was, you know, an absolute mind boggling uh, scenario for somebody that was coming from a world, you know, C-sharp, .NET, Ruby, you know, just that fault tolerance concept, it would have taken so much effort to, you know, begin to build that yourself. So, Yeah, I can definitely echo that sentiment. I mean, the fact that it's it's built into the platform that we're writing applications on really, really helps. Uh, I was actually in a similar space in, in telecom and similar experience, right, where we had these, uh, these services that were all written in Elixir. They were super boring because they never went down and they were always available. And if we did have hiccups, it, it always managed to to come right back up without you know really impacting any of the uh, the users, so can definitely echo that sentiment. That's that mention that exactly what you said is one of the things that it makes me laugh about. You know, a lot of my elixir that I have, you know, shipped in production over the past few years is that it it is extremely boring. I've I feel like I've turned into the uh, you know the old neckbeard guy at work that you know I worked with a lot of a lot of people that are younger than me and. They, you know, naturally it's like anytime we have a problem and I go try to solve it, they joke, oh, Adam's going to go, you know, write it in Elixir. And when I do do things like that, again, it's just the beauty that I, I find in it, especially as I, I've been in the industry for a while now, I don't, I don't like being woken up by things. I don't like surprises anymore. So the beam is great at that. You know, it's just. You kind of build it. I mean, it's not magic. You got to think about it. But, uh, you know, all of that code, I have things that have been running daily. I don't even check on them anymore. They've been running for years and they're, everything's just solid. You know, if you find that good fit for the, for the, you know, the VM. Yeah, I think that's a symptom that's echoed by a lot of people. I think we had Desmond Boyan, what was it, like four or five weeks ago? And I think he said the same exact thing. He's like, he loves Elixir and he loves how boring his applications are because they're always up and running. And yeah, I think that's a pretty common trend if you've been doing it for a little while. Yeah. So after um, you know, after doing Erlang for a bit and then switching to Elixir, you know, how was that transition? Were you able to take a lot of those Erlang concepts and kind of apply them to Elixir without much, you know, without much difficulty? Did you find yourself kind of missing the Erlang syntax after switching to Elixir, or do you kind of do both these days and you have the best of both worlds? You don't miss anything. So it was interesting. I I was exposed to Erlang, like I said, around 2011, and after I think around 13, 14 months, I had actually. I'd left that position and went to a place that was focused on crawling the web. Again, kind of related back to my talk at ElixirConf last year. So when I when I first joined that that company, they they were subtly aware of Erlang, and I had just come out of you know this mind blowing experience with Erlang. So I, I joined them, and they were actually a Ruby shop primarily. So 
early on, I, I saw this potential fit for, you know, for Erlang in the crawling era, in, you know, the, the world of crawling at scale, you know. So I, I absolutely kept, it was stuck in my head, if that makes sense. But I, you know, starting a new job, I wasn't going to go in there and say, hey, we need to drop all of your legacy code and rewrite everything in Erlang, right? So I, for, I, I basically sat there for a few months supporting our, our platform and, you know, trying to, you know, make improvements where it made sense. But I was always working on the side on little, little improvements, little services I could build in Erlang. So I was doing a lot of that over the, the course of, I'd say, three years and keeping an eye, an eye on the Elixir development, you know, once that was announced. I don't remember exactly what year Jose first had, you know, dropped that initial release, but I was very aware of it and keeping up on that effort. And so, um, again, I, I'd been really focused on Ruby. And for anybody that's been crawling as a full-time job, the company I worked for, uh, was a company called Authority Labs, and uh, they've since been acquired. But they basically sell SERP data, which is search engine ranking position. So people want to know where their their website ranks on Google, you know, Yahoo, or any other major search engines. So we were crawling search engines, which you know, for anybody that's attempted to do that, it they do not want you crawling search engines necessarily, and so there, there was a lot of architecture to keep that, you know, that mechanism running and the business moving forward. So again, that was all Ruby when I walked in. As Elixir started to get, you know, more feature parity with some of the, you know, the basics, it started to stabilize a little bit as you neared 1.0. I really started to look at my pain points in that architecture because, again, it, it was. I talk about this in my my Elixir Comp talk, but it was extremely challenging to maintain that business and the the crawling architecture. So, so I'd say you know to answer your question, the transition from Ruby to Elixir to Erlang. Again, I was kind of doing I was doing all three, if that makes sense. But it wasn't a conscious choice just because I was so busy. It was seven days a week of twenty four seven, making sure that the system didn't you know fall down. So there wasn't a lot of time in there to really, you know, sit down and whiteboard a greenfield rewrites in Elixir or Erlang. So the, the way that kind of ultimately unfolded was we, we had some major failures with one of the uh, one of the, our core crawlers. So we, we had an outage that had to be ultimately solved. We had some very tight SLAs in that environment. And after, I think it was around an 18-hour day, I had actually come up with a solution in, in C initially to fix some issues that became really cumbersome as it, as it kind of grew in scope throughout the day. Again, because I was kind of, I had to make up all of, I basically play catch up on a lot of data that we missed earlier in that, that afternoon. So by the end of the night, I had actually written it again for, I think like the third or fourth time as an Elixir solution, naively throwing every sort of process I could at it, you know, a lot of the task async and and things like that, gen servers, trying to just throw power, raw power. I had a 32 core machine. I was just trying to slam this thing. And you know, I was able to recover from that, from that trouble. And you know, that really is what sealed it for me, in the sense that I think, you know, when you encounter those tough situations, you know, you're trying to fix something, there's nobody that can bail you out. 
that really cemented the language, some of the syntactical features of Elixir in my brain at that point, where it wasn't, again, it was this kind of just natural transfer from Ruby to Elixir because of a mistake, because of a fire or an accident. So, Yeah, that's an absolutely wild story of, of getting into Elixir for real. I also find it beautiful that you sort of cut your teeth with the Elixir on an incredibly concurrent system. That's that's really, really a sweet spot. I haven't had an excuse to run Elixir on that many cores yet, but I, I really look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, I, I probably didn't need, you know, it was just there was a piece of bare metal sitting around and I had a lot of data to process, you know, in a very short amount of time. So I, uh, I, I look, I, I think about that code now and it, it makes me cringe because it was so abusive as far as, you know, what you would normally do at the beam. I, I was maxing out every core. I was, um, you know, I, as you, you start to get more familiar with the beam, you realize let the schedule would do its thing. I was, I was just doing everything in the most wrong sense, but it was a, a simple solution. And again, it, it was able to bail me out of that, that pain at that point. So, yeah, I think it's interesting that in the beam, you can almost always do in parallel and concurrently what you would always tend to do in see in a sequential manner in other runtimes just because in other runtimes it would be an absolute pain but in the beam it's generally just like okay spin off a task or spin off a process and have it call back somewhere you can manage the state you can actually not be very concerned about like share data because there's not any of it so so yeah i i'm not surprised that this was was a good fit for what you wanted to solve and what the the fire you were were actually fighting so i'm sure most people have had time to to catch your talk since now or since 2019 elixirconf the last fiscal one so far but would you go into a little bit about what you what you covered there yeah i kind of gave it was a very high level talk you know i i met a lot of people that day after my talk and I was I was concerned because I didn't go in too much into any I didn't show code. I, I was talking I wanted to talk more about architecture and the big picture, and uh, I was worried about that going into the talk. But afterwards, people seemed to respond pretty well. But in the talk, I, I kind of cover the point of time right after I'd, I'd mentioned this you know scenario where there was this big you know not not an actual fire, but you know a fire in the sense that you know we were really struggling. We had a an outage, and the the beginning of my talk at ElixirConf kind of focuses right around that period because, you know, in the same time I was dealing with that that particular day, which was going to cause me a lot of trouble, we were we were just continuously having problems. And again, it wasn't language specific. I think it was probably more architecture specific, but we were just having struggles to to basically have a have a good day. You know, at the end of the day, when your business is based around you know, capturing millions of items a day with a tight SLA. I had, you know, to put in perspective, I had a, around a 10-minute SLA for a lot of the requests because our consumers would send basically an API request to us and we had to respond with that data in as uh, little as, you know, 10 minutes. So it's it's hard to maintain that 24-7, especially when you do not know what volume we're going to receive. I, I could have been sleeping and had a million requests come. Well, I have to basically provide data for those requests 
within 10 minutes. And again, these are asynchronous crawls that are happening that that could the crawl itself could take up to, you know, give or take. We we tried to get the crawls in about in a in a minute, but they could actually take you know two to three minutes depending on the type of crawl it was or if it had a page through. So as you can imagine, when you do not know what, what your client base is going to send you, it it can be extremely challenging to meet meet those uh, requirements. So that's where I start in the talk at ElixirConf, kind of explaining a lot of that you know, a lot of those constraints that I was dealing with. And at that time, I just, it seems like any time that there was a, a family event or it was a weekend and my wife and I were, you know, sitting down for a meal, that's when things would break. You know, it was always during the day, never an issue. I could have millions of requests and never have a problem throughout the day. But it was when I was sleeping, weekends, you know, family events with the wife and kids, Things would break, and then I'd have to always break my laptop out and fix it. Again, I just you know want to explain some of that backstory of why you know what I really wanted to focus on in that talk was explaining this terrible world that I was dealing with. I mean, I think everybody's had some of those experiences where you know things are hard to support. And you know, at the end of the day, when I did introduce Elixir, you know, and fully embraced it with one of our particularly difficult crawls it was a night and day difference. I had uh, two outages that I can recall after I'd launched that over the next uh, two or three years. And both of those outages were self-induced, logger issues. So, and, and on top of that, you know, it wasn't really my goal to cut back on costs, but Elixir did play a, uh, quite a large role in making, you know, those particular crawls a lot more, you know, financially efficient. So. It was it was really a good a good outcome and and yeah the talk itself after the talk I I met a number of really uh, really sharp people that, that stuck around after my talk a, little, a lot more people than I expected in the crawling space at ElixirConf that I met so that was also interesting just because I, I think it's gotten better in the over the years but traditionally people that are crawling at at a large scale often don't they don't talk about it because of some of the, you know, it, it's kind of a gray area, you know, obviously. So it, it was definitely interesting for me, though, to see and meet so many people that that had an eye on that space. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've done uh, some pretty basic scraping using just like Floki and Tess async stream. And that's got me pretty far. I mean, granted, that's not at scale, but just for some toy uh, fun projects, that was, that was more than sufficient. So I imagine, uh, you know, as you leverage more and more, beam ecosystem tools that job gets a little bit easier but can you go into some of the challenges of, of doing these kind of you know scrapes and crawls at scale and at these you know these pretty complex use cases like how do you deal with you know rate limiting or let's say you know the place that you're trying to scrape is an spa do you have to render it in like a headless browser like how do you how do you go about solving some of these issues yeah all, i mean to be honest all of the crawls i've been doing since i would say 2000 15, 2014 have almost always been headless browsers. So we started out using a lot of uh, Phantom JS. Definitely, a, you know, in cases where we could crawl without a headless browser, that was great. I mean, obviously a lot easier to deal with if you're making HTTP requests. But but yeah, we we had to focus on things that were definitely more SPA styled or, you know, had a client side uh, aspect to them that was critical to our business needs. So so definitely worked with a lot of client side things. Eventually shifted to 
started out with Phantom JS, shifted to Nightmare JS, and then Headless Chrome has become, you know, kind of ubiquitous in that scene, Headless Firefox to an extent. So then when you think about that from a, an Elixir or, you know, any language perspective, really, I, I was ultimately using Elixir to, I guess, to uh, create a pipeline around those third-party processes. And I would spin up, you know, the, the headless browser. That's, that's how I traditionally do it. Spin up a headless browser from Elixir using, you know, you can use ports. My, I think I was using Earl port last time, if I recall. And there's pros and cons to that. But, you know, basically relying on a lot of those callbacks to tell me if that process had crashed, if it failed, handle those effectively. And then I would use all of the, you know, libraries like you had mentioned, Floki. I, I, I know it's not the fastest parsing library, but uh, it's very easy to work with. And parsing was never really one of my pain points, you know, if that makes sense. So it was more that orchestration, if more than anything, is where that where I really got a lot got a lot of strength out of the the beam. As far as rate limiting goes, yeah, I mean, again, a lot of the things I was crawling by nature were not things that necessarily, you know, they wanted us to crawl. I always have stuck, you know, I've stuck with always public facing data and, but, you know, you have to rate limit just to preserve your IP space. If you're crawling in a scenario where you're using a lot of proxies, I had, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not, I mean, ultimately millions of IP addresses at hand in those days, both V4 and V6. So you're dealing with a lot of proxies. You're dealing with, you're definitely rate limiting again, just out of the sense of, you don't want to abuse these these resources that you're crawling. And you also just want to be smart about preserving your IP space. So it's definitely not a scenario where you're, if you're doing it at scale, you're not going to necessarily want to crawl as fast as you can, right? You have to, again, you have to think long-term about the business and you know, making sure you have resources available for tomorrow versus just, you know, running in there like a bull in a China shop. So. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, Definitely relate to that uh, as, as using Elixir for more of like an orchestration layer. I have found that to be a, a pretty powerful pattern where you use Elixir for all the things that, you know, require, you know, putting data together, assembling stuff, and then, you know, using a port or something, toss it off to, you know, another program that was purpose built for the task at hand. So I've, I've definitely leveraged that before. And, you know, I, I, you know, like most things Elixir, it ended very well and I had a great experience with it. And you kind of bring that fault tolerance aspect even to other ecosystems where it maybe wasn't baked into the you know the original program or library so that's been that's been my experience as well super handy very useful leveling up is important i spend at least an hour every day learning ways i can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book if you're looking to level up i recommend you start out with the 12 week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want you can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So have you, I mean, if you could dive a little bit into the architecture, did you use Broadway to kind of queue up a lot of these, uh, you know, these scraping tasks and stuff or? Yeah, at, at the time when I, the first crawler I built, Broadway wasn't wasn't in play yet, nor was, I think, I don't know if Gen Stage was out yet. There might've been some effort in Gen Stage in that era, but uh, Early on, it was hand-rolled OTP, you know, primitives, gen, a lot of gen servers, a lot of working with the, the native Erlang queue constructs. And so 
again, it, it was very naive. I, I spent a lot of time really, despite having experience in Erlang and Elixir, you know, when you go into some of these problems, you, you get tunnel vision, especially when you're looking at that old code base, you know, more of an object-oriented Ruby architecture. So it, it definitely wasn't a copy and paste scenario. But again, I, I really didn't architect the very first version of that in a way that was, you know, more beam friendly or optimized for that world. So I find myself pushing a lot of data through versus more of, you know, the pull approach that we were, you know, is obviously much more scalable in the sense from a back pressure and, you know, things like that's what gen stage and inherently Broadway, you know, it's one of the key features there, right? So I, I was, again, naively trying to push things through that first architecture. At some point, I did switch over to gen stage and I still, you know, I, I had, it was a distributed system to be clear. So I, I had this concept of a kind of a master node that in my architecture that was in charge of all of the, basically send out orders, you know, and it would tell all of the other crawling nodes what to work on. It kind of kept track of those I used. I did actually pull the, the, the Phoenix channels and Phoenix pub sub. I pulled that in, even though this was not a Phoenix app. So things like CRDT to synchronize some of that state. So I did have I had this nice real-time UI so I could see what all of the nodes were doing. And ultimately at that point, I still, again, I started using GenStage, but it was limited to the to each node. So I wasn't using GenStage in a distributed way. I, I actually, I just never tried it. I was using RPC calls to communicate across nodes. And then within the nodes, GenStage was, was absolutely used. And then at one point later on, I, I still hadn't been using Broadway yet. Broadway had just come out. I had re-architected that second version of my crawler architecture and started using GenStage, you know, remote, like distributed. So I was actually syncing GenStage topics across nodes, which was, that went really well and very surprising. You know, it's one of those things, again, even though I've done it many times over the years, when you, when you take something like GenStage, you know it should work distributed. I, I read that it did, and I looked at the source code, and there was no indication it wouldn't. But when you actually see that work, when you just subscribe to a, you know, a feed and gen stage across, and I, I was going from AWS to to a co-located data center in uh, Texas, and so I was curious, like, hey, I'm just going to try this. Let's give it a shot, see what happens, and yeah, it works so well. There was never an issue. So I could spin up those nodes dynamically in AWS. They would subscribe to the uh, the other distributed, my, my main node. And then it would automatically set up a gen stage pipeline and just start working. So that was really great. By the time Broadway was out, I was chomping at the bit because it, you know, really all at Broadway, from my perspective, what it really helped do was simplify and take a lot of those patterns that I was already doing in gen stage and allow me to just basically define some configuration and you know really get some productivity out of the box so that was a uh, you know definitely broadway's influenced a lot now and now that i'm not crawling I, I still use broadway a lot for a lot of the work that i do today yeah no, for sure i i think i went through a very similar kind of evolution i was using gen stage and i found myself kind of repeating the same kind of abstractions over and over again every time i needed it somewhere new and I watched, the, I think it was Jose Valim's talk on Broadway when he introduced it. And he went through how 
he saw a similar thing in his consultancy where a lot of his clients would come and they would need these uh, these pipelines set up and they were setting up these kind of identical supervision trees every single time for customer needs. And then they clicked and like, let's just make the library, you know, they call it Broadway. And then we get all those supervision tree setups out of the box. We get, you know, just a little bit of configuration here and there. And before you know it, you get, uh, you know, mass concurrency and processing. So I, uh, I definitely, uh, I'm definitely digging that. From a testing side of things, when using Broadway, do you use like RabbitMQ and then spin up like containers side by side to validate that your your Broadway pipelines are working? Or do you like mock out if you're using SQS as, a, as an external resource? How do you go about validating that your Broadway stuff is actually working as intended? Yeah, that's a good question. The I, I'm, I'll be honest, I, I have not used Rabbit with Broadway in any sort of you know production fashion over the years. We used Rabbit a lot in the past, but Oddly enough, it's always been in languages that were not Beam languages, right? So Python, things like that. But in regards to testing with Broadway, a lot of times I'm using Google PubSub or SQS. So yeah, we will mock out those, you know, those features for uh, test purposes. But at the end of the day, you know, we a lot of times we'll have a test environment in AWS as well. Not that we're running in any sort of CI, but you know, when you when you're mocking. Things like that, you know, there's always still that question, how is this going to hold up when you actually attach it to a third-party, you know, pub sub channel? So, yeah, there's that involvement there. And then I, I did, I wrote a Broadway, an off-Broadway library for Redis using using or abusing, I guess you could say, uh, Redis lists. And that's something that I, I actually use still in production today. And and that one, you know, we, we have a number of tests that are set up internally for that too, related to Redis. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Thanks for writing that that Redis library. I'm sure I'm sure someone in in production's using it and happy that you wrote it. Do you ever find yourself having to kind of break out of the abstractions that Broadway has set up and go back to gen stage to set up something a little bit more, you know, tailor-made for a particular use case? Or does does Broadway at this point kind of cover all the bases and you don't really see the need to kind of build from scratch using gen stage? I've never really thought about it until you asked, but I, I can say that I, I don't believe I've written any gen stage code in probably two and a half years. So well, about two, I'd say at this point. So I, I think that that answers it because I, again, I, I know I have some gen stage code that is currently running in production. It's not been really touched. It runs every day. And I, I suppose when, when or if that were to need changes or break, you know, I, I would probably evaluate at that time if I could just switch over to Broadway. But I haven't found a scenario where I've had to really go back to gen stage, to be honest. Yeah, now I'm a little bit curious what you've been using um, at your new job. Or at the time of this talk, uh, I believe the crawling job was already your old job and you had, had moved on since then. But what stuff in the Elixir ecosystem have you been looking at the most recently do you still do a lot of this type of data processing and have you been looking at some of the other things coming out yeah the 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 big shift for me was really going from the crawling space and now i work you know the company i work for now is in the hr tech market so we, we definitely we're not have no case of crawling but but the really what i find interesting is that the type of work i do now and the tech work my team does is not all of, all that different. We integrate with large scale third party ATS systems or applicant tracking systems. So if you think about a big box store, or a, you know one of these large conglomerate companies, 
as you could probably imagine, when they have job openings, they have thousands of applicants. So what my company does is we we integrate with these third-party ATSs, CRMs, you know, your popular CRMs like Salesforce and such. We integrate with those. We bring all of that data into a central source to make it highly searchable, um, normalize a lot of data, and basically serve that up in a way with a little bit of intelligence so our users can optimize you know, their, their workflow and their day. So in the grand scheme of things, again, we're not crawling, but we are. those integrations are not all that different when you really step back and you think about the nature of crawling. There's still uncertainty. Right, you're dealing with a number of third-party APIs, and you're dealing with data that inherently, too. And if you, you or any listeners have worked with something like a Salesforce, you quickly realize that every implementation is custom. Just the nature of those sorts of systems. Same thing with these ATSs. Every one of them is custom. So it's when you, when you think about that again, you you have all of these unknowns. Even though I think a lot of times engineers try to. They'll look at an API doc and think, oh, this isn't hard, right? But when you factor in all of the, the cust- you know, the differences between the systems and then the customizations within them, Elixir and Erlang still fit pretty well into that space. It's because again, we're we're just we're pumping data across the wire and a lot of normalization and things like that. Now I, I do want to state that we we have we're primarily a Python shop at, at hiring solve, but we definitely have a lot of elixir that I influence there that's in the mix and some services. And one of our very strategic integrations with a popular ATS is all elixir. And it's been really great. We use um, Broadway and you know as part of that solution, along with my my Redis, you know, Broadway, you know, connection there. So that's been it's really great because that one ATS integration, I'll be honest, now that I mentioned it, like I, I think I, I, I probably haven't looked at that in six months, but I know it still works because the, my customers that utilize that, that particular integration with that ATS provider, their data is updated every day. It's always in sync, never a problem. So, and I, I you know, in particular, that case there, we were spinning up every time we'd get a new integration with this uh, ATS it would take our you know members of the team maybe a week or so to provision you know write some python scripts to integrate for a particular client what we were able to do with the elixir solution was make it dynamic so it actually sniff out and it still does it sniffs out for a particular client it logs into the api for those with that client's credentials it sniffs out any customizations using some uh, you know clever approaches there to requests and so it it basically can it dynamically adjust based on any customizations the client has. Again, and this is not our system. This is talking to a system that's maintained by another large company. So that's that's really provided a lot of value. Like I said, it's when I say I, I haven't even looked at the code or checked to see its status in months, that says a lot right there in my mind. Yeah. Allows us to focus on problems that are harder to solve, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've recently had the pleasure of working with some third-party integrations and something I ran into there where was that I needed to actually stick to their rate limits and I wanted to fit within the rate limits rather than violate them and then back off. And I don't think I could have done a good job solving that in a distributed fashion inside a clustered application in any other runtime. It's it's a finicky problem full of full of interesting edge cases. 
such as you can only have these many concurrent requests and you can only do these this amount of requests in a minute but we won't tell you which minute and <laughs> that sort of thing is that sort of what you've had to deal with as well or are you mostly rate unconstrained no every absolutely i'm dealing with that every one of the Every one of these systems that we integrate with has rate limits. And not only that, it's not that the system has rate limits, but again, I'm going to use Salesforce as an example. Salesforce has a has a tends to have a global rate limit for a particular client. And again, you'll bump into these Salesforce implementations that we're not involved with those, but people want that data to be absorbed into our platform. So I have a case recently I was I me and my team were working with, and this this partner of ours had so much customizations to the Salesforce system that, you know, it, it would eat up thousands of, of those uh, requests just to do some basic pruning of data on the back end. So before we even start making requests, you know, we, we might have already lost 40% of our, of our rate limit for the day. So that's interesting. But then, you know, to top that off in the case that, the system I had built a while back that connects with a particular ATS provider, they have rate limits that are unique per of their customers, which are inherently my customers. So I have I have a single system that then it actually has to adhere to the rate limits, you know, and I we have a web interface for this. It's a it's internal only, obviously, but Phoenix based. So when you want to configure a new client. You log in there, enter their info, and it automatically goes and makes a request, understands their rate limits. And then each client basically has their own pipeline. And each one of those pipelines is dynamically rate limited, you know, based again on that client settings. So every one of our integrations, I, we probably maintain, I'd say, well over 100 integrations right now, actively 24-7. Each one of them has a different rate limit scheme, but not a single one of them has unbound requests unfortunately yeah that fits what i expected i think the building blocks for for building the solutions to these these problems are something elixir and erlang provides in a way that most most runtimes as i said would have at least it would have at least been harder to to make something that could still be performant to the extent that these integrations can be performant Absolutely. ETS is really the, you know, and there's obviously many ways to solve rate limits, but I, I tend to lean on ETS. It's been a, uh, been a savior in that regard. I'm curious from a business perspective, are you, able to, are you able to point to these Elixir services and say, hey, look everyone, look how you know reliable, fault tolerant, awesome these services are, and use these as a case study to say, maybe we should write new things in Elixir, you know, where it's relevant, obviously. And, and do people, are people uh, you know, receptive to that? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I mean, for sure that that helps that case more than just words or saying, hey, we should write everything in Elixir. You know, that's been one of the challenges, obviously. I'm sure both of you deal with this as well when you're kind of working in a corner of the industry, despite, you know, what I feel is arguably some of the best engineering, you know, on the on the planet. You know, again, I'm I'm a little bit of a homer in that regard, but but yeah, the Definitely, it's a case where I've shown, you know, time and time again, where the fit is right, you know, from a business perspective, you know, there's absolutely compelling reason not, you know, to where people should not ignore Elixir or Lang or anything on the BM or the, the beam in my mind. 
So, yeah, and I mean, in my my role right now, I'm you know I'm actively involved with business development as well as you know the budget for the engineering side of my company. So it's it's always in the forethought of my mind. Like, can we solve this with the beam in a way that not only a saves money, but saves time? I, I I'm a big fan of making sure that my engineers are. You know, I want to make sure they're rested. I, I don't want people working long hours. I don't want people maintaining things. So it's that both that you know the financial side as well as the human cost. I'm absolutely conscious of both of those. Yeah, that's beautifully stated, and I hope companies listening uh, take notice. And I hope the people listening actually share it to their decision makers because I I think even with looking back to just Erlang, the power has always been there and i think elixir makes it more accessible and then on top of that frameworks like phoenix make it productive to parity with something like python's django or ruby's rails and then we're building more on top of that that might not even be feasible to build with those runtimes and i think there is so much <laughs> there's so much leverage and so much power and so much velocity that you can find there if you dare to go there. And I, I think a lot of companies are catching on, but it seems like it's it's slower than it could be. And I, I definitely think there's a competitive advantage for those to do. I think it's to the extent, like I, I wouldn't say that there's an advantage to picking Django or Rails over one another because I find them entirely equivalent. And I'm sure Laravel is fairly similar in what it offers for PHP developers. But I think there's a concrete actual business value in choosing this, this technology stack and generally that that's not something i expected to be saying like a few years back like oh but your technology choices aren't the most important part like no they're not the most important part but in this in the case of elixir i i find it has an outsized impact because it raises the capabilities of what you could do even if, when it on, even if you only use the basics of it, it gives you a higher reliable floor as well. I agree 100%. What's interesting, you mentioned the strategic advantage. And what I find, it's really interesting to me around Metro Phoenix, where I'm located. I'm in, you know, just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, you don't hear much about Elixir or Erlang here in the Valley. But, you know, when you start talking to people, I, I've discovered in the last couple of years, there's a good probably 10, 10 companies that have really invested a lot into, into Elixir and the beam here in the Valley that just, they, they don't share it publicly necessarily. You'll, you'll bump into, uh, you know, old colleagues and they'll talk and, you know, it's, it definitely is a strategic advantage in certain verticals. I would say, you know, the, the more, as time goes on, I, I hear more and more about, at least again, from a local perspective, companies that are either, you know, it's not a case where they're going all in on Elixir, but they're definitely dipping their toes in the water. That seems to be happening even recently here. And I, I've heard the same thing from, from people in other cities. And it's it's not necessarily the Silicon Valley or, you know, your big tech hubs. It's It seems to be smaller areas. I know up in, uh, I'm from Michigan and in Metro Detroit, there's a number of people I know up there still that are now getting into Elixir in within organizations that, Publicly, you would you would not imagine that they would even be considering, but it, they are good fits. So, I think the one for me too that really hit me last year, and maybe I was late to the game, but the presence of PepsiCo at the ElixirConf 
2019 was was very interesting. So and it sounded like they had been in the space for for a little bit. So yeah, and I could definitely uh, definitely echo that. Sam, I think it was I think it was the late Joe Armstrong had that tweet a while back where he was saying that some of the companies he was working with were using Erlang internally, but then publicly they would say they were just on the JVM because they they considered it some sort of like a, like a trade secret or you know a piece of you know, what made them successful as a company. So I think, I think that's in line with a few companies uh, these days. But yeah, I mean, at least from my personal uh, professional experience, I ran into a very similar issue where we were using Node.js for a, uh, an application. And the problem we were trying to solve was that it was a healthcare-related issue where we were trying to ingest a lot of HL7 messages. And the Node apps were just crumbling. And it was, I mean, this was a technical problem that was now impacting the business as a result of the, uh, the runtime and the language. And yeah, I, I tried, uh, you know, pushing for the beam and, and trying to get it in there, but I was unsuccessful in that endeavor. But, you know, I, def- I definitely have been in those positions where the beam would have saved us and would have been a great technological fit. So I've definitely, definitely seen it. Definitely seen it. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. But yeah, with that, I think we'll be uh, transitioning here to picks, and I'll, uh, I'll kick us off. We've been chatting a lot about rate limiting, so I'm going to shamelessly plug a blog post I wrote a little while ago called Easy and Robust Rate Limiting in Elixir. And I go through leveraging uh, task supervisors and gen servers and writing a uh, token bucket and a leaky bucket rate limiter in Elixir. They're pretty short uh, examples. So if you ever need a very basic uh, rate limiter on a springboard off of that, you know, feel free to check out that, that blog post. Lars? Yeah, for sure. So I just updated the beanbloggers.com. So uh, it can actually list some of the latest posts. Just it just scrapes some RSS in the background, or rather, not scrapes, but pulls and parses RSS in the ba- background. And yeah, I think people should check that out. And I think if you blog about Elixir, Erlang, or the Beam to any extent, I think you should give me a pull request and add your site. And I've also told Alex to fix his RSS auto discovery. So this is a public call out. And Adam, if you have anything you want to plug or promote or anything neat you saw recently, feel free to provide us with a pick. Do you have anything? Shout out or a pick to Chase Granberry, who is a, I don't know if you guys have talked about Logflare before, but I know it's an Elixir project. Picked up a little steam recently. He was actually my CEO at a, at a previous job. And I'd like to think that me going on and on about the beam helped influence him. He'd actually left that position and started started writing Elixir. And so his website's over at logflare.app. And again, I know it's Elixir native, it's open source. So pretty cool stuff. We'll have to get him on the show at some point now that you now that you dropped his name. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, thanks, Adam, for coming on the show. Appreciate the uh, discussion. Yeah, thank you both very much. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.